word of God we read this morning is Isaiah chapter 62. Just for the sake of context, the previous chapter, Isaiah 61, is a very well-known passage. It's a passage that Jesus quotes in the synagogue in Nazareth when he declares that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's word concerning the servant of the Lord. In other words, he claims to be the Messiah. Isaiah 61 is the passage where the servant of the Lord says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And it's his ministry then and his work that is being described in the rest of that chapter and the effects of his work. And that continues in chapter 62. So we read chapter 62 with its proclamation of the righteousness of Zion in light of the ministry of the Messiah, which is in the background. So we begin reading at verse 1 of Isaiah 62. This is the word of God. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof is a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest till he establish until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord hath sworn by his right hand, and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies, and the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine, for the which thou hast labored. But they that have gathered it shall eat it, and praise the Lord, and they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Go through, go through the gates, Prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, say ye to the daughter of Zion, behold, thy salvation cometh, behold, his reward is with him and his work before him, and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and thou shalt be called, sought out a city not forsaken. We read thus far in the Holy Word of God. In light of that reading of Scripture, let us turn to the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 23. Take note, since Lord's Day 7, you have been working through the articles of the Apostles' Creed as a congregation. And now Lord's Day 23 is a conclusion to the Apostles' Creed and why it's important that we know the Apostles' Creed and confess it and believe what it says. Question 59 asks, But what doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this? Answer, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. How art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that, Though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding, God, without any merit of mine but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? 
Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, what Lord's Day 23 teaches has the power to change your life. It's very easy living in a fallen world and in our present time to live in a constant state of gloominess. This seems to be the message the world wants us to hear nowadays through its various forms of media. You're anxious, you know. You're anxious. You can't handle very much. You need safe places. Safe spaces to shelter you from painful reality. You need to ruminate on your bad feelings. What makes this message easy to believe is there is a fair amount of truth in it. There are many pressures in life, and we are not always up to those challenges. There are uncertainties as we live in a fallen and broken world. There are problems that arise in our lives. There are critical voices. And when we do wrong, there is shame. Knowing as Reformed people that human nature is depraved, doesn't make the picture any less gloomy. Makes it even worse. Isaiah doesn't deny any of this. This is our natural name. According to Isaiah, in verse 4, forsaken. Desolate. Forsaken as something ugly, repulsive, shameful, desolate, like a city broken down, full of nothing but ruins and ashes. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be our mode of thought. As we live our lives, we don't have to listen to the voices of gloom all around us. We can be confident. You, beloved, child of God, can be confident, strong to face life and its challenges with poise, able to face death even, happily. How? How can we be confident and joyful in the face of all of the challenges of life and in the face of our own sinfulness and brokenness and failures? How? By believing something very simple. How the Heidelberg Catechism began. That I am not my own. But I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, because I am not my own, because I do belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, I am righteous before God and an heir of eternal life. Whatever the men around me may say about me, whatever I may think about myself in my own mind as I ruminate on all of those bad feelings, this is the truth that I believe I am righteous before God and an heir of eternal life. Or to put it in Isaiah's words, you must believe your name is no longer forsaken. Your name is no longer desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah. For the Lord delighteth in thee. That's the theme I call our attention to this morning. 
the Lord calls you Hephzibah, which name means my delight is in thee. First, we will consider what this beautiful new name is that the Lord gives to us. Secondly, the full embrace of faith, that is, how we know that this is our name and how we appropriate that and apply that to ourselves so that we live under that name. And then finally, how this profits us, not only today, but always. It's an endless profit. The Lord calls you Hephzibah, first the beautiful new name, secondly the full embrace of faith, finally the endless profit. Now there was a woman in Jerusalem whom everybody knew whose name was Hephzibah. This woman who lived in Jerusalem whom everybody knew was the queen. If you remember a little bit of the history of Isaiah, you might remember that Isaiah was a prophet during the reigns of four kings in Judah. There was Uzziah, there was Jotham, there was Hezekiah, and there was Manasseh. Well, Isaiah was the prophet in Jerusalem in the days when Hezekiah was the king of Judah. And Hezekiah had a son whose name was Manasseh. And we read in 2 Kings 21, verse 1, that Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. That's the only other time that name appears in the Bible. 2 Kings 21 verse 1 and Isaiah 62 verse 4. There in 2 Kings 21 verse 1, it's referring to a prominent woman, the queen, whom everybody would have known. Here in Isaiah 62 verse 4, it's being applied not just to that one prominent woman, but to the whole people of Judah. It is the name given to the city of Jerusalem, which you may remember in the Old Testament stands for the church. God is saying to his church, your name shall no longer be forsaken. Your name shall no longer be desolate, but your name shall be Hephzibah. And this is what that name means. My delight is in you. Now, that's a powerful statement that God makes to this people in this particular historical context as the people of God are really staring down the barrel of judgment. Part of the reason that name Hephzibah stands out in 2 Kings 21 verse 1 is because it stands in contrast to the other name that's given in that same verse, the name Manasseh. You might remember who Manasseh was. Yes, he was the son of good and godly King Hezekiah, but for all the goodness and godliness of Hezekiah and his queen Hephzibah, Manasseh was a wicked man, a horribly wicked man. Manasseh was the one who led Jerusalem into such appalling wickedness and rebellion that when the armies of Babylon finally arrived on the doorstep of Jerusalem, this is what God said about that as he evaluated his people and the situation. 2 Kings 24 verse 3 says this, Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah, that is, came the armies of Babylon to sack Jerusalem, to burn the temple and to tear down the walls. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did, and also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon that's Manasseh, and that's why the city of Jerusalem was given this name, forsaken and desolate. Judah was the land flowing with milk and honey, but Judah was given the name desolate, forsaken. That city, which was the city that God chose where he had his temple built, became a heap of pile of, of ruins. Its king was cast off the throne his eyes plucked out of his head, and he cast into prison. Its people hauled away into chains. And in that act of God bringing judgment upon Judah, the finger of God was pointing at his people, accusing them, judging them for the evil. The evil 
into which Manasseh led them, with evil which through Manasseh's leadership they perpetrated. For though Manasseh was the one who set up the idols, it was the people who bowed down to those idols. And though Manasseh is the one who ordered the deaths that made the streets of Jerusalem run red with blood, the people consented to it, or they did nothing to stand in his way. Collectively, it was the people, not only Manasseh, who plugged their ears and would not listen to the prophets that God sent and instead killed them. So the Lord says, this will be your name, forsaken, desolate, and you will be a city of ruins. But now here comes the word of the Lord in Isaiah 62 to that people. Isaiah, you might remember, was among the innocent blood shed by Manasseh. But Isaiah was a prophet, and he was speaking to the future people of God. And God was speaking through Isaiah to his people after all of this rebellion would take place, after everything that Manasseh would do and how the people would follow him. And finally, they would be there in chains in Babylon. God was speaking to them through Isaiah. This is what he says to them. Though their name was forsaken and desolate, their name shall be Hephzibah. Verse 1, for Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof that is, the righteousness of Jerusalem goes forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. You will no longer be termed forsaken. Your land will no longer be called desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. I will call you by a new name. I will call you by a name that you all recognize that you all associate in your history with royalty and with beauty and grace, that you all connect not with the reign of Manasseh, but that you connect with the reign of Hezekiah and with the days in which God's people were led to worship and fear Him. I will call you Hephzibah, and your land shall be called Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. There's only one way to explain how this beautiful name can be given to this people. And that is by imputed righteousness. The truth is, in light of Manasseh and what he had done and what the people had done under his leadership, there's nothing about Jerusalem that is delightful from the Lord's point of view. She's a wicked city. She's a rebellious city. She's a city that never listens to the Lord. She's a city that never trusts in the Lord, that never seems to learn that the Lord sends prophet after prophet after prophet. They, they kill them, and they stone them, and they reject their message. Yet God says, I will not rest until thy righteousness goes forth as brightness. When you look at that in light of the historical context, you have to scratch your head and wonder, where does that come from? What righteousness? What's he talking about? That's why I drew attention to the fact that Isaiah 62 comes after Isaiah 61. To understand what righteousness he's talking about in Isaiah 62 verse 1, you have to look back at Isaiah 61 when he speaks of the Spirit of the Lord God being upon His anointed servant, Jesus Christ, speaking as the Messiah says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. 
In other words, this is not a righteousness that comes from Zion herself. This is not a righteousness that comes from Jerusalem herself. This is a righteousness that comes from the Messiah and through his ministry. And that righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, will become the righteousness of Jerusalem so that she is given a new name, no longer called forsaken, no longer called desolate, but Hephzibah, my delight is in thee. Now imagine what that sounded like to God's people as they were sitting there in chains and in ruins in Babylon. As they had seen the armies come and tear down the walls and slay many people in the streets. As they had felt the iron chains on their own hands and had been hauled off into desolation and ruin in captivity and sat by Babel streams weeping. Imagine what this word sounded like to them. Not all of God's people, of course, had the ears to hear it. I shouldn't say God's people, but not all the people of Judah had the ears to hear it. Many of them turned away from it. They refused to hear it. They became amalgamated into the people of Babylon and were lost. For the people of God, the believers who understood their sin, what they had done, why they were forsaken, why they were in chains in Babylon. To hear now this word coming from the past, connecting them to this person that they all knew, Hephzibah, a delightful queen. That's the name the Lord's going to give to you, Hephzibah. My delight is in you. Beloved, When it comes down to it, that's all it means to be righteous. That word righteous is one of those words, I think, that sometimes we are intimidated by. It's a theological term and it's a legal term. And then we have to make distinctions between actual righteousness and imputed righteousness. And with all of these terms, we begin to ask, what does all this mean? What what is imputation? What is... Righteousness, it all feels so complex. But all it means, beloved, is this. And all the Lord's Day is saying is this. God accepts you. He approves of you. So much does He approve of you and accept you that He delights in you. When He looks on you and evaluates what you are, smiles and says, my delight is in this person. This person measures up. This person has a place before my face to live with me in fellowship. When we make the confession of answer 59, that's what we're saying about ourselves. What does this all profit us? That I'm righteous before God and an heir of eternal life. God accepts me. God approves of me. God, when he evaluates me, delights in me. Now that has to be imputed righteousness because it does not come from ourselves. And that's important because God is not a liar. God cannot look at me and evaluate the things that I have actually done with my hands, the thoughts that I have actually thought in my head, the words that I have actually spoken with my tongue, and say, on the basis of all of those activities, you are righteous, I delight in you, I love everything that I see in you. God can't do that. Because the truth is, I don't measure up to God's standards in my actual deeds. My life and my deeds are not straight and true and right, but there's crookedness there. There's failure, there's distortion, there's transgression against God's laws. And not only can God not do that because God is not a liar, but God can't do that because I would never believe Him. And the reason I would never believe Him if God just said that without any reason is because I have a conscience. And you have a conscience. Your conscience is the voice inside of you, inside your soul, that tells you 
regarding the things that you have done, whether it is right or whether it is wrong. Our conscience is not so much a guide, as popular culture represents it, a guide that leads us on the right way or the wrong way, but our conscience is a judge. He's a little judge who lives inside us, and he evaluates our actions, and he makes us know, and he impresses upon us whether what we have done is good or whether what we have done is wrong. And because the things that we have done are wrong, what our conscience does is he accuses us. Our our conscience is like the prophets in the Old Testament who came into Jerusalem as the people were bowing down to idols and said, what you are doing is wickedness. You are bowing down to idols when you ought to be serving your God. Our conscience does that inside. Our conscience says, according to the Lord's day, that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil. And that's what my experience tells me as well. That's what my lived experience tells me when I look at my life, my past, what's going on inside me all of the time. Unrighteous. So if God were just to say, you're righteous, I couldn't believe that. There has to be a real righteousness. Something that I can hold on to so that I can believe God when He says that about me. But it can't come from me because all I find within myself is unrighteousness. So it has to come from outside of me. That's why we speak of imputation. When you hear the word imputation, just think righteousness so that God can approve of me. But it comes from outside of me, from a different source. And what is the source from which that righteousness comes? Well, it comes from Christ. It comes from Jesus Christ who came into this world and unlike me, who always used my hands to do wickedness, He always used His hands to do right. And He always thought right thoughts. And He always felt right feelings. And He did righteousness according to all the standards of God. He loved God with all His heart, mind, soul, and strength. And He lived His whole life that way, even though He had to suffer for it. God, for Christ's sake, because I belong to Jesus Christ, imputes His righteousness to me. He gives it to me. So that it's just as if I never committed any sins with my own hands, but instead I have done all of the things that Jesus did. That's how God looks at us. Now that's a real righteousness. That's something solid that I can look at and behold. And it satisfies God's demand for justice. And it becomes mine. Simply because Jesus wants to give it to me. He does give it to me. He assumed responsibility for us. He became our head. And then as our head, He lived among us. He earned that righteousness for us. And now He gives it to us. He says, this is yours. Therefore, on the basis of what Christ has done and the righteousness that he has earned, God says, your name is Hephzibah. My delight is in you. But we said at the beginning of the sermon that the truth taught in this Lord's Day has the power to change our lives. So far we've been talking about this in the realm of the objective that is God says something about us. He gives us a new name. But how does that thing that God does in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and now that thing that He declares, how does that become a force in my life that actually impacts my experience today? How does it have an impact on me today? And that's what the Lord's Day is getting at when it asks the question, how? Question 60, well, in question and answer 59, we we make that confession. I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. But how? How art thou righteous before God? And that the idea of that question is this. How can you make that claim? How can you, 
And I, standing right here, right now today, living in this cursed and fallen world, knowing everything that we do about ourselves, how can we make that claim? I am righteous before God. I'm an heir of eternal life. How can you say the Lord's name for me is Hephzibah? His delight is in me. God delights in me. God approves of me. And how can you not just say that about yourself, but how can you actually go on living as if that's true? So that when you face pain in your life, when you face challenges, when you face the fact of your sinful nature and besetting sins, and when you face the accusations of conscience, that you can still say, nevertheless, this is the truth. I'm righteous before God, and I will experience life that way. How can we do that? And behind that question is also this thought. Don't you know yourself? Don't you know what you've done? Aren't you aware of the things that you have thought? The feelings that you have felt? The words that you have spoken to others? The deeds that you have taken in your hands to commit? Don't you remember the sins of youth? Don't you have a conscience? That still tells you today what it has always told you. That I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them. So it's a lie. Isn't it? It's a lie. When you say that I'm righteous before God and an heir of eternal life. All the evidence says the opposite of that. This is a cleverly crafted exercise in make-believe. It's a fiction, or even worse than that, it's a very bold and arrogant self-delusion. But this can't possibly be true. Righteous before God? You? Sinner? So how? How can we say that? And how can we live every day? In spite of all of the challenges and objections that come our way, how can we live every day as if that's true? And it's not just a confession that I make with my lips, but this is how I live my life. Before God, I'm righteous. I'm confident that He is my Father. He accepts me. He approves of me. He delights in me even. The answer is only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Faith is a wonder for two reasons. Faith is a wonder, first of all, because it's the lens through which God shows to us that we are truly righteous. By faith, we see Jesus Christ. Lord's Day 23, we said, is the conclusion of the Apostles' Creed. But what have we been doing as we've been working through the articles of the Apostles' Creed for the last several weeks? But what we have been doing is we have been beholding our God. We have been beholding our God in Lord's Day 9, in Lord's Day 10, as our Father, who is our Father for the sake of Jesus Christ, who has adopted us into His own family. We have, as we have been working through the Apostles' Creed, been beholding our God as the Son who came into this world and who lived among us and who suffered and who died and who rose again. And we have, in Lord's Days 20 through 22, been learning about the Spirit of God who was poured out on His church by the ascended Jesus Christ. And there's this whole body of truth, the articles of the faith that is explained to us and set before us and now with that all explained before us, we're looking through it like a window. And we're looking through that window like we're looking up into Christ, looking, looking up into heaven itself, and there we see Jesus Christ, the very same Jesus Christ who these articles tell us about, 
the very same person who was sent by the Father into the world, who lived among us, who died, who rose again, who sent His Spirit, and now in heaven He stands living as our advocate before the Father. We see Him by faith. And by faith, we say, Jesus Christ did all of those things. He did them in real time, in real space. Real blood was shed. A real body was broken. He did all of that. And he did it not just for other people. He did it for me. I was there with him when he was walking through Galilee, when he was suffering all of the insults and accusations from the scribes and Pharisees. I was there with him when he was being flogged in Pontius Pilate's hall. I was there with him when he was being nailed on the cross. I was there with him in the tomb. I was there with him when he came out of the tomb. He did it for me. And therefore I'm righteous. Faith is a window through which we see Jesus Christ, our righteousness, the real flesh and blood Savior who lived and died and acted in our behalf and lives today in heaven. And then faith is a gift that God gives. And He gives it only to those who are righteous in Jesus Christ. You understand that? The fact that you have faith, which is a gift that God gives and works in His people, indicates what God already thinks about you and how God evaluates you. He sent His Spirit upon you already. That's why you can see through that window. You couldn't see that before. You couldn't see that when you were living in the world in total depravity in blindness of mind and spiritual darkness. Now you can. What explains that? Through election, God has already designated you as one in whom He delights, as Hephzibah. And He gives you His Spirit so that you can see that and appropriate that and understand that and know that about yourself and so that your experience every day isn't, I'm broken and I'm forsaken and I'm desolate. But no, I'm righteous in Christ. The very fact that you have faith marks you out as one who is righteous. And now you can look through that window. But of course, this means you have to believe it. Or as the Lord's Day puts it, in answer 60, we must embrace such benefit with a believing heart. This is one of those areas where it can start to feel a little bit tricky. Because on the one hand, we might say, well, if I'm only righteous in as much as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart, then really it's up to me after all. I have to believe and how righteous I am will be determined by how good my believing is. Or on the other hand, we might say this, well, if I'm only righteous in as much as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart, then really there's no hope in this for me after all, because I know my life, I know myself, I know the weakness of my faith, I know that there are always doubts and fears plaguing me and clouding my faith. So that might be something that discourages us or makes us proud when he says, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. But those are two ditches, you see. On the one side is self-reliance, where believing becomes a new law to which I must measure up in order to be righteous. I have to believe enough in order to be righteous. The other side is despair, where believing becomes this massive mountain that I can never hope to climb over. But in either case, that's not true faith. And the Lord's Day rejects those as the explanation for how we can say today, I am righteous. In question and answer 61. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ 
is my righteousness before God and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. When you sit down for supper this afternoon, you're not going to say at the end of dinner, I'm satisfied and full because I have this plate and I have this fork. No, the plate and the fork are only tools that bring the meal into your mouth and into your stomach, but it's the meat and the potatoes and the vegetables that satisfies you. So your righteousness and worthiness is not based on your faith or how strong your faith is. Faith is only a tool. Faith can be as thin as a spider's thread, but if it's connected to Jesus Christ, you will never be separated from Him. It's only a tool. But the issue we're dealing with here is how can I be confident today in my lived experience? How can I make that bold confession? How can I say, I am righteous? And how can I experience life every day knowing that that's true? If one day I'm cast into prison by an earthly judge who rejects Jesus Christ and who rejects the Word of God and who even says, I'm an evildoer because I believe in the Bible, how can I stand before that challenge, that earthly ruler who wants to persecute me and say, regardless of what that man says and regardless of how he's going to make me to suffer for it, nevertheless, before God, I am righteous and my conscience is clean. How can I get to that point? And how can I live that way? The answer is by embracing it with a believing heart. I don't know what else to say. The window into heaven has been constructed by the gospel doctrine that has been preached as you've worked through the articles of the Apostles' Creed. The calling of the Word of God now is look. Look through that window. Behold your God. Behold Jesus Christ, your advocate, standing as your righteousness at the right hand of your Father. The calling in the Word of God is listen. Listen to what God is saying to you. He's saying, your name is Hephzibah. I delight in you for the sake of Jesus Christ. Hold on to that. the idea of an embrace. An embrace not passive. When you embrace something, you clasp it. You cling to it. You wrap your arms around it. You don't let it go. This is everything to me and I'm going to hold on to it with everything that is in me. That has a power to change your life. It has a power to change your experience from the experience of gloom and fear to that of confidence and joy before the face of God. It doesn't mean that in this life, as a believer, you'll never experience anxieties or fears. Every believer is a work in progress always, until we enter into glory. Nevertheless, this is the key to joy in Christ and the living of a renewed life. This is the answer to conscience. This is the answer to all fear and anxiety in this life. The calling of the Word of God to us is that we must embrace Jesus Christ and His righteousness with a believing heart. Look, Hold your God. Listen. Hear what He's saying to you. And hold on to it. Don't ever let it go. The prophet of this is not only prophet for today, it's profitable for tomorrow also. That's what anxiety is fear about what's going to happen to me tomorrow. This fear that what I have today I won't have tomorrow or I won't have the day after that. And if our righteousness was something that had to come from us, there would be a great deal of anxiety. And there ought to be a great deal of anxiety because if it depends upon 
me. It's my ability to earn righteousness before God. There's never going to be enough. Even if I could be righteous for today, I'd, I'd still have to be righteous tomorrow. And I'd still have to be righteous the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And one little slip up would tarnish the whole thing. It's different, though, when your righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is always righteous. And he isn't going anywhere. He's just as righteous today in heaven as he was 2,000 years ago when he was hanging on the cross. The righteousness that we embrace by faith today isn't going anywhere. It's fixed. And if there's profit in this righteousness that we embrace by faith tomorrow, then there will be profit in it the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, every day of your life. There will be profit in that righteousness for you when you are facing fears and challenges and besetting sins and accusations of conscience going through the whole course of your life. There will be profit for you on the last day of your life. That's when it all matters. Our instinct would be to say it's not fair. Why should that thief on the cross be allowed to go through the gates of righteousness into glory? When he spent his whole life as a brigand and a robber and a thief and a murderer. It's not fair. You're not going to think that way when you're on your deathbed, beloved. Fair? What does that have to do with it? Fair? Who said any of this was fair? God is just. God doesn't do anything that violates his own laws and his own principles. But when you're on your deathbed, when you are about to fall into the hands of your creator, you're not going to be thinking about what's fair. The only thing you're going to be thinking about is grace, mercy, imputed righteousness. It will be there for you will be there for you then, just like it is today. And it will keep being there for you. Even after you die, it will keep being there for you. When you stand before the gates of heaven. Why should this gate open up unto you? Why should this gate admit you, you sinner? Didn't you live your whole life violating God's commandments? The answer will be the same then as it is today. Because... I am righteous before God in Christ and an heir of eternal life. Open the gates. Open the gates. I have a right for those gates to open to me. Not because I am righteous in myself. But Jesus Christ has given me that right. Open the gates. And we aren't just playing tricks with words here, beloved. what Rome says about this doctrine. Rome says it's a legal fiction. Make believe. God can't really give you a righteousness you didn't earn. You have to earn it. You have to make up for your mistakes. Every bad work that you do, you have to do another work to cover for that one. And if you don't do that, you're going to spend a long time in purgatory. Or maybe you won't even make it there. But that logic of Rome is the logic that puts people into hell. If you believe that you are righteous before God for the works that your hands have done, that's the logic that puts people into hell. Deception. This is the truth. What the Catechism says. That God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I never had had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience 
which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. And because that's the truth, this is what I may say, and this is what you may say. I am righteous before God and an heir of eternal life. My name is not forsaken. My name is not desolate. My name is Hephzibah. With all the saints of God, my name is Hephzibah. God delights in me. Do you believe that, beloved? Do you believe that for yourself? Believe it. That's what the Word of God says. Believe it. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we are amazed at thy goodness and thy mercy that gives us a righteousness that is not ours, comes from outside us at great cost to thyself, to thy Son, Jesus Christ. Pray, O Father, strengthen our faith. We feel the weakness of our faith. We are glad, O Father, that our righteousness does not even depend upon the strength of our faith. It's only a tool. Nevertheless, strengthen our faith so that when doubts and fears and troubles come up in our lives, that we may not be troubled by them, that we may keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and His righteousness, and then live for His glory, live a transformed life, and bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Pray for Thy help, O Father. We can't do this ourselves. Let Thy Spirit be in us, with us, remove us, forgive all of our sins, impute to us the knowledge of our righteousness in Christ. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.